Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, social media's New Zealand problem and why Silicon Valley may fall in love with Beto O'Rourke. But first, the hypocrisy of social impact investing. So last week, we discussed the giant college admissions bribery scandal in which wealthy parents paid for such things as fake standardized test scores and athletic profiles. Most of the attention went to Hollywood names, like actresses Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin, but the biggest financial bust was a guy named Bill McGlashan, who, until his arrest, managed billions of dollars for private equity firm TPG. Now, most of McGlashan's claim to fame at TPG was creating a big tech investing group that backed such companies as Uber, but more recently he had teamed with Bono, yeah, that Bono, to create the Rise Fund, focused on what's known as social impact investing, or sometimes known as double bottom line investing. The basic idea of this is to incorporate social and environmental impact into the investment process, or more specifically, invest in companies that are intentionally seeking to achieve positive results beyond just their income statement. It's become a pretty popular thing among institutional investors, with former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick running a similar program at Bain Capital and BlackRock CEO Larry Fink talking it up in recent interviews. And then there's, of course, Al Gore, who more than a decade ago launched a firm specifically focused on what he called sustainable investments. The big question now, however, is if these efforts are more window dressing than substance, investments that by definition almost defeat their own purpose, particularly when it comes to income inequality. McGlashan is allegedly a hypocrite, and by his selfish actions, it's put a new spotlight on his peers. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Chief Financial Correspondent Felix Salmon. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech. From the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Axios Chief Financial Correspondent Felix Salmon. So, Felix, you wrote a piece this weekend in Axios Edge on the hypocrisy of Bill McGlashan, which seems to be a given. But then you kind of paint social impact investing as a whole with a much broader brush. So, assuming McGlashan's colleagues aren't scamming colleges, what do you think they're doing wrong? This is a good opportunity to ask whether they're doing anything right. Bill McGlashan was at the forefront of attempts to try and quantify the social impact of the investments that he was making. So far, we haven't seen a lot of quantified results there. Impact investing is old enough now. It's been around for long enough now that it's time to sort of come in from outside and look at all of the people who say that they're doing it and ask, what is this like social return on capital that you've been promising? Has anyone been held accountable for this? Has anyone said that they were doing impact investing and made money and then been held accountable and by people saying, well, you've made money, but you haven't had any social impact, so I'm withdrawing funds or anything like that? Because unless and until that happens, it looks like a marketing gimmick. The types of investment that, for example, Rise Fund for TPG or the Bain Capital Double Impact Fund, the types of investments they're making. Now, you might argue that you know they're not doing you know the work of UNICEF or Oxfam. They are different sorts of investments than the main funds or traditional private equity fund invests, and they're not buying a widget maker in Cleveland. That's, I think, worth looking at. I think there's a very strong case to be made that some subset of Bain Capital and TPG investments will always if you squint in the right way, be able to align in one way or another with one of the 17 different sustainable development goals and the 150-odd sub-goals that they have. You can always, there's very few investments which, it, which you can't 
align in some way with those and therefore in some way claim to be an impact investment. No, so it's a, qu- it's a question of emphasis, right? So well, I guess what I'm saying is that let's say that you're Bain or TPG and you just do the same thing that you always do and invest in the same range of companies that you always invest in, but then you just take the companies that are slightly more sustainable or something and you ring fence them and call them an impact fund. Right. In other words, for example, education is probably a good example. Not education finance, but education kind of providers has generally been something private equity has tried to steer clear of because it's just generally a bad business for them. It's just not something that makes the kind of returns that, again, the widget maker generally makes. These funds are doing that. Is there not? And I guess I wonder for you, you talk about measuring the social impact. How how would you do that? And I I understand you're maybe going to say it's incumbent on the investors, but for you, how would they measure that in a quantifiable way? Well, so the first thing to say is that if you take TPG and Bain and everyone else at their word, that if the education investments don't return exactly the same dollar returns as the widget makers, then they won't invest in them. But they don't. These funds generally have lower return expectations. If they weren't investing them on the grounds that they that they couldn't make the same returns before, then they won't invest in them for, on exactly the same grounds now. So it's not a question of you need these funds in order for them to make the investments, because if they can make the dollars work, they'll invest in them anyway. No, but that's my point. Generally, and I, and I can't speak exactly because I haven't looked at the documents of, for example, a rise fund. Generally, though, social impact funds are telling prospective investors the return expectations, and that's not necessarily what the ultimate returns are, but the return expectations are lower than they are for a typical buyout fund or typical venture capital fund. That's not what they told me. They told you they've got the same return expectations? Yes. TPG told you that? Yes. That's fascinating. Okay, that that was not my knowledge. Usually they they ask for lower ones. Felix, you talked a little bit, and this is slightly different, but you talked in your piece about green bonds. That's something that obviously was very popular, a bit less popular today. Explain kind of your critique of the green bond movement. My critique of the green bond movement is that there's one main type of green bonds, which is basically bonds which are entirely fungible with non-green bonds. They have the same credit profile, that they're issued by the same issuers. They're issued by municipalities or by the World Bank or even by sovereigns, and they have the same full faith and credit behind them that the non-green bonds do. And the people who buy them are basically bond investors wanting that credit. And it's there's no visible difference between the green bond and the non-green bond. That like In much the same way as there's no visible difference between impact investments at private equity companies and non-impact investments like it's all the money is all just going into this big fund whether you call it tpg or whether you call it the world bank and you know it's being divvied up in certain ways and it's weird to kind of say well your money is going to good causes and everyone else's money isn't there are a few exceptions like the world bank ebola bond which was designed to pay out in the event of a massive second ebola outbreak there was a massive second ebola outbreak and the bond didn't pay out so i i'm not seeing green bonds as a particularly effective form of impact Felix Salmon, Chief Financial Correspondent for Axios. Thanks so much for joining us. My final two right after this. There's more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. And now back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the tragedy in New Zealand in which a psychopath not only murdered 50 worshippers in a Christchurch mosque, but broadcast the massacre live via Facebook. So the social network reports that within the first 24 hours, it removed 1.5 million copies of the film, around 80% of which it was able to block at the time of upload. 
but it's been very complicated work, as some users intentionally made small modifications, like adding watermarks, which were designed to trick Facebook software. Google-owned YouTube has had an even tougher time, at one point deciding to temporarily remove its entire search function, because just typing in New Zealand at the time could achieve the desired result. The bottom line here is this is just the beginning, not the end, of such tragedies being broadcast via social media, as platforms like Facebook and YouTube were essentially designed to let people upload their own content in search of wide distribution. The companies will work very hard to combat such horribleness, but it is very hard to see how they'll ever be one step ahead. Finally, we learned on Friday that newbie presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke was once a member of a computer hacking group called the Cult of the Dead Cow. Now, this was back in the late 1980s when O'Rourke went by the screen name Psychedelic Warlord, and he now does acknowledge using cracked software and tricks to obtain free long-distance phone calls. Why it matters is this may make O'Rourke a favored candidate in Silicon Valley. Not so much for his hacking exploits so much, but just for the fact that he has a deep understanding of how software works, or at least a deeper one than most other politicians. For example, President Trump still doesn't use email, and as Axios' Jonathan Swan reported last night, Trump believes the idea of self-driving cars is, quote, crazy. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers, have a great national Sloppy Joe Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.